Welcome to Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. Today I interview philosopher Tyler Wonder. I'm always struck by how startling this shift is and how brazen it is that, that he undercuts all of these other potential accounts of warrant using this standard, which he then repudiates prior to introducing his own theory of warrant. If you like the show and want it to continue, do me a favor and write a kind review on iTunes or send the link to a friend. And now, my interview with Tyler Wonder. Dr. Tyler Wonder is a recent graduate of Boston University, where he defended his dissertation, Warrant and Religious Epistemology, a critique of Alvin Plantinga's warrant phase. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tyler, let's start by getting clear on what Plantinga's epistemological project has been throughout his career. The title of your dissertation is, you know, about his warrant phase, which kind of implies mm-hmm. maybe there was a different phase of his career as well. Yes. Could, could you explain for us what the development of Plantinga's project was and what his goals are? Yes. I think you can divide his religious epistemology up pretty fruitfully into three stages following James Bealby on his recent book on Plantinga's religious epistemology. Hmm. And uh, starting with stage one, there's uh, Plantinga's first book, which is called uh, God and Other Minds. I suppose I should probably set up what belief in other minds is. It is just simply the belief that there are other mental experiences out there in reality that are not your own, that there are people out there who are you know, just as real as you are. It's the rather astonishing belief that not only do I have a mind, but, but you're not a robot. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, what Plantinga is doing is that in this book, he argues that the, the traditional arguments for the existence of God are all failures, but so are many arguments against the existence of God. And then he considers the issue of whether or not there are other minds, whether uh, the belief that there are minds other than our own are justified. And what he ultimately concludes with is that belief in other minds is no better argumentatively supported than belief in God. But that since belief in other minds is clearly rational, then he offers this as a tentative conclusion, then then so too is belief in God as well. Hmm. So that's the basic gist of God and other minds, which you can you can call the first stage in, uh, in, in Plantinga's religious epistemology. And so he's trying to show that it might be rational to believe in God, even if there are no good arguments for God. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly what he's trying to suggest, because there are beliefs that do so qualify, belief in other minds, even though, according to his analysis, there are no good arguments or ultimately successful arguments for uh, belief in other minds. Nevertheless, it's still rational to believe it. And so since there are, he concludes, beliefs that are like that, well, maybe belief in God is like that too. Hmm. I mean, he does actually have some kind of argument for that. He suggests that there's a similarity between the best yet unsuccessful argument for God and the best yet unsuccessful argument for belief in other minds, that they both somehow share a similar failing and so on, on that basis, he seems to conclude that, well, then maybe these beliefs are sort of on par in their ability to uh, be rational without there being sort of any successful argument for them. Hmm. 
So that's his first stage. The second stage of his religious epistemology gets a good deal more explicit with the epistemological terms such as foundationalism and, and, and properly basic, uh, and reformed epistemology itself is introduced in this second stage of his religious epistemology, uh-huh. which is, I think, best re- represented by a, by a series of essays that run from about 1979 until about 1983, uh, and are, are maybe best represented by a, a flagship essay called Reason and Belief in God. Okay, so there he's maybe saying much the same thing, but he's just using the uh, the philosophical language in a more standard way and talking about foundationalism and properly basic beliefs and that kind of thing? Yes, it is essentially an extension of the previous argument. He's just fleshing it out quite a bit. For example, he explicitly identifies his opposition in this second stage, and he calls it evidentialism. And evidentialism is essentially the view that belief in God requires some sort of evidential or argumentative uh, considerations if it is to be rational. So having sort of explicitly identified that which he is opposed to, he then sets about trying to undermine it. And he does that by asking what reason there is to accept evidentialism. And what he concludes is that the best possible hope that the evidentialist has is to appeal to theory of that which can be properly basic, which Plantinga calls classical foundationalism. And so by suggesting that the best possible support for evidentialism is classical foundationalism, he is then able to attack evidentialism indirectly by leveling criticisms against classical foundationalism. And so could you explain what classical foundationalism is and how Plantinga proposes something that he thinks is superior to evidentialism? Sure. Well, classical foundationalism is a view on uh, what can be, in Plantinga's terms, properly basic. And perhaps to explain that, I should, I should go back and, and explain foundationalism, which is the, is the basic epistemological framework for pretty much everything that Plantinga is doing. It's all occurring within a context of, uh, of foundationalism. And according to foundationalism, those beliefs which get to be rational or otherwise epistemically sanctioned fall into two categories. They're either uh, the sorts of things that are based on other beliefs and supported by other beliefs, such as by, say, an argument, and there are those kinds of beliefs which don't have to be supported in that way, which get to serve as the foundations or the uh, epistemic bedrock by which you know our other beliefs are justified. And the motivation for foundationalism is, of course, is of course to escape the problem of having to uh, justify one's beliefs ad infinitum. You know, the problem of uh, okay, so I have this belief A and I support it by appeal to B and C. Well, that's that's fine, but what supports B and C? Well, okay, I have you know two more beliefs which support each of these, and then you can, you know how far do you keep going with this? And there are various attempts to try to try to solve this sort of problem. Uh, there's a coherentist outlook which tries to suggest that you know the beliefs are allowed to circle back on themselves if only the circle is big enough and comprehensive enough. There's a I think a relatively recent view called infinitism which uh, actually tries to suggest that the infinite regress is okay uh-huh. and uh, doesn't actually, you know, call the rationality of our beliefs into question. But a very popular response to this kind of problem 
of uh, where do you stop the chain of justification is uh, foundationalism, which just simply says that there's, you know, there are beliefs which get to serve as foundations, which can be used as justifiers, but which themselves don't have to be justified. And so classical foundationalism is just a kind of foundationalism, which has a particular view on what it is that gets to be in the epistemic foundations. Specifically, classical foundationalism says that, all right, if, if, if a belief is uh, self-evident, that is, if it's the sort of thing that when we just contemplate it, if we understand it correctly, we, we instantly understand that it's true, something like two plus two equals four, or uh, all black dogs are black. You know, you, these these sorts of things are are self-evident, so they uh, they can be justified without actually having to be based upon uh, an argument, according to the classical foundationalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, the classical foundationalist sanctions a class of beliefs which have come to be called, perhaps unfortunately, incorrigible. What what that simply means is that these are the sorts of beliefs that are uh, about our privileged first-person introspective awareness. So my belief that I am currently uh, being interviewed is not an incorrigible belief, but my belief that it seems to me that I am currently being interviewed, that's incorrigible. I could be wrong about the interview. I could be dreaming and really not being interviewed, but the Uh fact that it that, that, that it seems to me that I'm being interviewed. This is allegedly a, a sort of thing that we just can't be mistaken about. So these kinds of beliefs are classified as, uh, as uh, incorrigible. And why do you say that's an unfortunate label? Because I think it, it doesn't necessarily connote that which incorrigible beliefs are supposed to be. I think maybe you know, using the word introspective, for example, or ah, introspective okay. beliefs might be more helpful for explaining to undergraduate students, for example, uh, what incorrigible beliefs are. Now, the third and final thing that the classical foundationalist, as Plantinga defines it, there are different definitions of what a classical foundationalist is, but, but, and he himself defines it variously. But uh, his m- most common and I think encompassing definition of classical foundationalism also allows that the classical foundationalist will accept as properly basic, very simple beliefs about the external world gained via our senses. Things mm-hmm. like, there is a tree in front of me. There is a window in front of me. These are the sorts of things which the classical foundationalist, as defined by Plantinga, will allow to be properly basic. And if you assume that belief in God is neither self-evident, nor incorrigible, nor evident to the senses, then it follows from classical foundationalism that if belief in God is to be rational, belief in God is going to have to be based on some kind of argumentative considerations. So you can see how classical foundationalism might look like an attractive basis on which to support evidentialism, because it it does entail evidentialism. And so the problem, of course, to foreshadow a bit, is that the relationship doesn't go the other way, that evidentialism does not entail classical foundationalism, and it's not in any way committed to classical foundationalism. But anyway, so Plantinga kind of makes this connection between the two, and then attacks evidentialism indirectly by attacking classical foundationalism. And his two main criticisms against it, his two main criticisms against classical foundationalism are that, that one, it'll basically lead you to skepticism, uh, or at least it'll lead you to skepticism about many other things that you don't really want to be a skeptic about, according to Plantinga. Beliefs about, say, other minds, or our memory beliefs, these sorts of things, they don't classify as properly basic by the classical foundationalist standards. And so therefore, if they are to be rational, they're going to have to be supported 
on the basis of ultimately those things which are self-evident, incorrigible, or evident to the senses. And Fontaine is very pessimistic that this cannot be done. That 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 the the legacy mm-hmm. of the whole era of modern philosophy is to show that you cannot start with that very slim foundation, even allowing you know the, the stuff that's evident to the senses, uh, which which a lot of the modern philosophers wouldn't have done. It, it's just not going to be possible to justify a lot of what we ordinarily commonsensically consider ourselves to be justified uh, in believing. The other problem, and this is an interesting sort of problem because it typifies a, a theme that, that one sees in Plantinga's writings. If you, if you read through enough of them, you start noticing that the various positions that Plantinga takes issue with often end up being self-refuting or self-referentially incoherent in one way or another. Hmm. And he, he levels this charge against classical foundationalism. He says, well, you know, what about the claim classical foundationalism is true? Or, you know, classical foundationalism is the best criterion of proper basicality. Is that a rational thing to believe? Mm-hmm. Well, according to the classical foundationalists' own standards, if that's to be a rational belief, then it's going to have to either be properly basic or it's going to have to be derivable from the properly basic. Now, it's pretty obviously not self-evident that classical foundationalism is true. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, presumably, there wouldn't be so much argument about it. It's not incorrigible because it goes beyond just reporting my first-person introspective experiences. It's certainly not evident to the senses. I can't, I can't detect the truth of classical foundationalism in the way that I can detect whether or not there's a you know, chair outside my door. So if by its own standards, classical foundationalism is going to have to be, uh, going to be rational, it's going to have to be possible to derive it from premises which are self-evident or incorrigible, or evident to the senses. And again, Plenting is very pessimistic, and he doesn't think uh, he doesn't think it can be done. He thinks you know it's been it's been tried, but that no one's ever successfully done it. And he uh, seems to infer from that that it therefore probably cannot be done, which is probably going just a little bit too fast. Uh, but nevertheless, he's managed to convince quite a few people that there is some serious, serious difficulty in supporting classical foundationalism on the basis of uh, that which it sanctions as properly basic. Okay. On the basis of uh, these two kinds of uh, criticisms, he is attacking evidentialism. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, an obvious response that might suggest itself at this point is, like, let's say you are convinced that classical foundationalism is not a ship worth salvaging. It might occur to you that, that evidentialism doesn't necessarily have to, have to accept classical foundationalism, or the evidentialist uh-huh. is not committed to being a classical foundationalist. Mm-hmm. Surely he can come up with a, you know, something else that, that isn't subject to, to these terrible deformities. And uh, Plantinga's response to that is that, well, yes, that's that's correct, but the evidentialist faces a, a very, very steep burden of proof. If he wants to support his evidentialism against reformed epistemology, that is the position that belief in God can be completely on the, on the epistemological up and up, even if there are no arguments or evidence uh, on its behalf. If he wants to support this position, he's going to have to come up with a criterion of proper basicality to replace classical foundationalism. You know, if he doesn't like classical foundationalism, fine. You, the evidentialists are obligated to come up with a, with a, with a replacement, which overcomes both of these problems. The, uh, the, the one that, that, that it leads to skepticism, the other that it's self-referentially incoherent. And obviously it's going to have to rule out properly basic theism, or it's not going to support the evidentialist. 
And, and lastly, there has to be some independent reason to think that it's true. So that's sort of the state that Plantinga leaves his, his argument with, with evidentialism, uh, specifically in his second stage of religious epistemology. He's, he's still largely concerned with epistemic terms like uh, rationality and uh, justification and other sorts of epistemic concepts that fall into what's called the internalist camp. That is, these are, these are sort of epistemic states that we have some kind of introspective access into whether our beliefs have them or not. You know, whether or not I am justified in believing something is something that I can somehow be, be made a little bit aware of. Uh, whether or not my beliefs are rational is, is something that, that I have a little bit of insight into, or maybe even a lot of insight into. But this is the, the, the general presupposition uh, behind uh, a lot of Plantinga's epistemology in, uh, in, in the second stage of his thinking. And it's, it's a largely defensive stage. He doesn't, for example, argue explicitly that reformed epistemology is true so much as challenge evidentialism, show how, you know, based on classical foundationalism, it's not going to have uh, very good fortunes and put a burden of proof against it that it, that it, that it needs to uh, meet, which is very high and, and difficult looking and perhaps intimidating to have to even consider addressing. And uh, another large part of what he does is anticipate objections against his own position and then try to formulate responses to these anticipated objections. And I think there's one that might be useful to discuss. It's, mm. a, it's an objection which has come to be known as the Great Pumpkin Objection. Yes. It's, a, I think, a very venerable thorn in the side of Reformed epistemology. I think that uh, it, it is ultimately because of his dissatisfaction, Plantinga's own dissatisfaction with his second stage response to this, this objection that has, has, at least in some small part, motivated his shift towards the third stage, towards the warrant phase. So I think it might, might be useful to talk about it a, a little bit at this point before we move on to talking about stage three. Yeah. The basic gist of the Great Pumpkin Objection, I mean, it can be construed in various ways, and Plantinga does construe it in various ways. Uh, his, his, his typical manner is to raise a number of sort of implausible kind of formulations of the objection, which can be dismissed fairly quickly. And then finally to get around to addressing something that's a little bit more worth uh, considering. And what, what he, he finally gets around to, that's, that's a, a little bit of a reasonable construal of, of, of the sentiment of the objection, which, by the way, I think is, is maybe best summed up by uh, the rhetorical question, you know, why can't anybody do that? Or why can't almost anybody do what it is that the reformed epistemologist mm -hmm. is doing in defending his beliefs? Why can't that be done on behalf of all sorts of crazy, kooky, lunatic things? And so... Plantinga finally gets around to considering a version of this objection, which basically says, okay, you are maintaining that belief in God is properly basic, but you are denying that belief in the great pumpkin is properly basic. And on what grounds are you able to do this? Why is it that you don't need a criterion of proper basicality? And offhand, it would seem like this objection would be something that Plantinga would have some sympathy for, because after all, he'd pretty much raised the same or a similar sort of objection against the evidentialist, mm -hmm. saying that, you know, he had to come up with a criterion of proper basicality if he wanted to say that belief in God was not properly basic. And now that Plantinga wants to say that belief in the Great Pumpkin is not properly basic, it seems 
most fitting to ask, well, where's your criterion of proper basicality, which rules out belief in the great pumpkin and is not self-referentially incoherent and for which there is some independent reason to think uh, is true. And this is the point at which Plantinga makes this, this rather startling shift, seemingly without acknowledging that it, that it kind of undermines his prior attack against the evidentialist. He essentially considers two alternatives. One is Methodism, and uh, not, not Methodism in, in, the, in the sense of the, you know, the religious denomination, but epistemological Methodism, according to which if you want to, if you want to use a concept properly, you require a criterion by which to judge and assess your usage of that concept. The opposing position, particularism, says, no, 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 no. Usage precedes the criterion. We have to be able to use concepts, evaluate concept usage, prior to actually having any developed criterion of that concept, because it is by our usage of that concept that we will actually you know, establish the, the, the criterion. Now, when he was arguing against the evidentialist and, and saying, well, you know, classical foundationalism is defunct. If you want to continue on to your evidentialism, you really should come up with a criterion of proper basicality. He was, he was being a Methodist there. But now that the same sort of burden of proof is being thrust upon him on behalf of the great pumpkin believers, of which there are presumably none, he's now shifting away from Methodism and, and explicitly embracing particularism and insisting that this idea that, that, that you have to come up with a criterion of proper basicality ahead of time is completely off base. The, the proper way, Plantinga says, to come up with criteria is, is something which I think could be called the inductive method. And the inductive method of coming up with criteria for proper basicality, and presumably you could use it for other concepts as well, is to say, all right, we're going to start out with certain paradigm cases, certain touchstones of, or examples of beliefs such and such is properly basic in right. circumstances such and such, which are just obvious. And when we'll come up with examples where belief such and such is not properly basic in circumstances so and so, and that's just obvious. And using these kinds of paradigm examples, we can then through some sort of process that looks kind of like John Rawls's reflective equilibrium, you know, eventually come up with some sort of criterion of proper basicality on the basis of these paradigm examples. And, you know, who knows, maybe we'll come up with a criterion that actually causes us to reassess some of our paradigm cases and make changes to those. So they're, they're not necessarily set in stone uh -huh. and necessarily unchangeable. And all of this actually, to me anyway, doesn't, doesn't really sound uh, too bad until Plantinga considers the question of, all right, well, whose paradigm cases do we use? And the, the answer that he comes up with is that, uh, well, the Christian is fully entitled to, if he thinks about these things and, and concludes that the belief in God is not supported on the basis of evidence, then it's entirely right and proper for, for him to conclude, well, then it must be one of these paradigm case examples of a belief which can be properly basic and to sort of using the initial step of the inductive method, just declare belief in God or even Christian beliefs to be properly basic at the outset as one's paradigm examples of that which can be properly basic in, in, uh, in, in, in certain circumstances. And this hasn't 
really gone over terribly well. A lot of people have criticized this, including a lot of uh, Plantinga's fellow Christian philosophers have, have been less than fully impressed with this rather brazen declaration that the the beliefs, the proper basicality of which are in question in the first place, are just being sort of summarily inserted into the realm of the property basic, sort of on the yeah. uh, authority. Well, this is just something that a certain subset of the Christian community endorses, and these these are the examples that we choose to use, you know, when we're using the inductive method to come up with, you know, a, a criterion of property basicality. Which, by the way, the method is never actually used. It, it is only really invoked to perform the initial step of assigning belief in God status of proper basicality, and then uh -huh. there's no more mention of uh, trying to come up with an actual criterion. Now, this all seems rather sneaky. It, there is something about it that seems sneaky. And of course, as a response to the Great Pumpkin objection, although Plantinga addresses this point, he doesn't seem to recognize it as, as a furtherance of the sentiments of the Great Pumpkin objection. And that is, well, why can't I do that? Yeah. Why can't anybody do that? Why can't the why can't the uh, the evidentialist uh, essentially just parrot it back to Plantinga and say, look, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna gather with my like-minded evidentialists, and we are going to, on the basis of our group consensus, declare that belief in God is a paradigm example of a belief that cannot be properly basic in any circumstances. And when the uh, the Karl Barts and the and the Alvin Plantingas of the world object, we'll say, well, how is that relevant to our community? Yeah. So it's very openly susceptible to a, a further version of the Great Pumpkin Objection, I think, which is one which is, which is, which is very difficult for planting the second stage. And in fact, his response to this, he's foresightful to, en enough to know that this is going to come up. And his, his response to this is, well, there's no way to guarantee in advance that everyone is going to, to agree on the same initial examples. So with regard to the evidentialist using the inductive method to support his conclusion that belief in God is not properly basic, and the Reformed epistemologist's use of the inductive method to establish that belief in God is properly basic, ultimately this method is incapable of resolving this, the dispute between them. Now, he is careful to clarify that one of them is right and one of them is wrong, that he's not being an out-and-out -out subjectivist. He's not saying that it's somehow true for both of them. He's saying, you know, one of them's right, one of them's wrong, and, yeah. and you know, we know which one he thinks is right and which one he thinks is wrong. But as far as the inductive method goes, which is what he suggests is the best possible method we can, we can, we can have for coming up with criteria of proper basicality, it can't resolve this dispute. Well, I certainly hope that Plantinga found that so dissatisfying himself that that's why he decided to try something else. I think that's at least part of the reason. I think another part of the reason is that he came to be dissatisfied with the focus of debates in religious epistemology on justification and rationality. I think he came to be convinced that these sorts of epistemic statuses were such that they were very easy to achieve on behalf of just about anything. I mean, if Plantinga, for example, defines epistemological justification as basically doing one's epistemic duty, right. not violating your epistemic obligations. And so it turns out that you can actually be justified in a great deal by being a complete idiot yeah. who honestly 
sincerely thinks about things as hard as they can. And so long as they do that and they can't be faulted uh, and, and blamed for what they, what they believe, then their beliefs are thoroughly uh, justified uh, on this sort of deontological account of justification, even if they're completely at odds with reality. So he comes to be kind of dissatisfied with these sorts of somewhat liberal epistemic terms, and he turns his attention toward knowledge because, well, for one, the, 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 the question of whether religious beliefs can qualify as knowledge, I think, is you know, independently in, of interest to religious epistemologists, but also because traditionally within the analytic community, it has been insisted that knowledge has to be of things which are true. And so the shifting of religious epistemology away from justification and rationality, which presumably can be attached to false things, and the focus on knowledge, which can only be attached to true things, I think that is also, to a significant extent, motivated Plantinga's shift away from sort of the general epistemological underpinnings of the second stage towards the third stage, which I've called the warrant phase, and which displays pretty prominently something called uh, proper functionalism. Uh, yeah, so let's explain what is warrant. Um, well, I mean, to, to, to talk about the proper functionalist theory of warrant, I guess, you know, we have to, we have to talk about warrant. And according to a very venerable epistemological tradition, has to be of things which are, as I've already mentioned, true. Also, uh, it seems somewhat trivial, but it's always included in the analyses anyway. Uh, it has to be of something that you believe. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I could not be said to know that uh, Barack Obama is a secret Muslim. Because, first of all, I don't believe that Barack Obama is a secret Muslim. So I couldn't possibly know that he is. And second of all, even if I did believe it, it's not true. So on those two counts, that sort of example would not qualify as knowledge. Knowledge has to be, uh, you know, propositional knowledge, knowledge of a proposition. The proposition has to be true. You have to actually uh, believe it, presumably with a certain amount of confidence. But it's also part of this same epistemological tradition that although true belief is necessary for knowledge, it's not sufficient for knowledge, that there's something more required. And I think the, the motive behind this requirement is to rule out certain sorts of cases which could be, could be called lucky or accidentally mm-hmm. true beliefs. You know, I, I'll, I'll give you a, a pedestrian example. Imagine I've, I've visited the local shopping mall and uh, it's a busy crowd and out of the corner of my eye, I think I see my, my old uh, grade six teacher, Mr. Hennig. I don't get a really good look at him, but I get enough of a look before he's off in the crowd. And I, and I, and I, and I think, you know, I, I got a pretty good eye for faces. I think I saw him. I think Mr. Hennig was at the mall on such and such a day. And then, you know, you twist the example and you say, well, actually, my ability to recognize faces is not as good as I really think it is. Turns out I didn't actually see Mr. Hennig at the mall that day or any other day. But it turns out before I even got there, he had been at the mall picking up something or other, and then he, then he went home. So it turns out my belief that he was at the mall on such and such a day is true, and I believe it. Mm-hmm. So unless you want to classify this as a case of knowledge, you're going to have to say that, well, knowledge has to have something else beyond just being true and just being believed yeah. to rule out these kinds of accidentally true cases. Yeah. And so what Plantinga does is he, is he offers some terminological clarification and says, well, let's just call this thing whatever it is that 
turns true beliefs or merely true beliefs into knowledge, we'll just call that warrant. Now, you have to be really careful using the term warrant because warrant has common sense usages that, that make it a synonym with justification, uh, rationality. Is that belief warranted? What is your warrant for saying that? And usually when, when we use the word in those contexts, we, we mean evidence. We mean reasons. Now, that's not what Plantinga means by the term warrant. He really just means whatever it is that bridges this gap between true belief and knowledge. And it turns out, according to his analysis, that warrant is not justification, because justification cannot bridge that gap. It is not rationality construed in a, in a, in a variety of ways. It is not the coherence of our beliefs. It's not the reliability of the faculties which produce our beliefs, although he does think that's part of the story. In fact, it's the, uh, it's the function of the, the first book of the Warrant trilogy called uh, Warrant, the Current Debate, to basically clear away all mm-hmm. of these competing alternative accounts of what Warrant might be yeah. uh, before in the second book, Warrant and Proper Function, where he, he provides his, his own analysis of what warrant is. And he says that this third thing, besides truth and belief that defines knowledge, can't be justification because he has this kind of rights-based view of justification that we talked about earlier, where an idiot who is performing his epistemic duties honestly could have, you know, really... I think, I think that's part of the problem that he sees with justification. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, he has these, these counterexamples, and this is a large part of planting his methodology here, is to come up with counterexamples. Uh-huh. For example, justification, cases of knowledge where the belief in question is not justified. Uh, all right, well, that shows that justification is, is not necessary for warrant. And then cases of justified belief, which happen to be true, which don't qualify as knowledge, and those sorts of cases are taken to show that justification is not sufficient for warrant. So that's, that's the way he proceeds against justification and, and, and all of the rest by using these sorts of counterexamples, which are based on the assumption that, that an acceptable analysis of a concept has to be able to account for any logically possible scenario. This is a, is a very, very strict standard for a successful conceptual analysis. If you read through Warrant, the current debate, you begin to see how difficult it is to meet yeah. this standard, yeah. particularly when the only real restrictions that Plantinga seems to recognize are logical possibility, just as so long as, as the, the example doesn't contradict itself in some way or perhaps contradict some necessary truth, then it's okay. So counterexamples involving lesions in, in one's brain that cause one to believe that you, you have a lesion in your brain or uh, bursts of gamma radiation, which uh, freeze your internal cognitive experiences despite you know, the sensory input that you're being bombarded with. And uh, uh, alpha centurion scientists. <laughs> uh, manipulating, uh, manipulating our minds. So, you know, very fanciful stuff. And, and I, I mean, if, if the standard is, is being able to account for any logically possible counterexample, then, then I suppose fair enough. Although the problem is, is, is that, 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 that doesn't turn out to actually be the standard. That's the standard that Plantinga uses to attack his competitors. But at the very end of Warrant, the current debate, and just prior to giving a little summary description of his own theory of warrant, he suddenly declares that this 
standard of conceptual analysis, uh, the one that he criticized all of his competitors for not meeting, turns out that's not actually the right standard. It turns out that that's an unreasonable standard. It's uh, uh, These sorts of standards might be appropriate in logic and mathematics, but it turns out that these are not actually very good standards to use in, in epistemology or even the, you know, the metaphysics of modality or, or, or things of that sort. I'm always struck by how startling this shift is and how brazen it is that, that he undercuts all of these other potential accounts of warrant using this standard, which he then repudiates prior to introducing his own theory of warrant. Well, then does he go back and reassess all the no. other no. theories under a new criteria? No. He doesn't give any indication that this is in any way inappropriate at all. This reminds me of his second stage when he decides that... Oh, yes. Are you talking about Methodism versus Particularism? Exactly, yes. yeah. Yes. It's, it's convenient enough at times, but when you don't need it anymore... You can always throw it away and, 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 and take something else. And, I mean, you know, making changes is, is fine. I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. But I think it's important to recognize the implications of these shifts for uh, the things that you might have said previously. Well, it's every round that is going around, he's he's got to employ a double standard, as far as I can tell. I would hesitate to say every round, but I would say you can find more than one instances where he's pretty blatantly employing a double standard, one for himself and one for those that he disagrees with. There is a tendency, he will even be praised in the literature for his bravery at confronting <laughs> philosophical orthodoxies and challenging them and saying, well, why should I think that is so? Why should I accept that? What are the reasons for thinking this is true? And that sounds very much like evidentialism, except, of course, it's not applied to belief in God. But it is applied to pretty much anything that Plantinga takes issue with. Yeah, and so then when somebody asks him, well, why should I believe in God? Then he says something like, well, you know, this is what we Christians believe already, so... <laughs> I think there is some justice in, in, in seeing it as ultimately boiling down to that, yeah. When I discuss Plantinga's type of apologetics or defense of Christianity on various websites, this is the kind of thing that makes non-believers in God just kind of pull out their hair. <laughs> um, because... Yeah, I can, I, can, I can kind of imagine that. It certainly could be frustrating. I mean, especially if you, if you take the bait, trying to come up with a, you know, a, an account of warrant, which somehow evades all logically possible counterexamples. You better make sure you get to the end of the book so that you can realize that that turn, turns out that that's not actually the standard for success after all, uh, and that the standard for success is something that he calls the paradigm case model, huh. according to which it turns out that there are these paradigm cases, we've already kind of encountered this term before, cases of clear and unambiguous and uh, central usage of a term or a concept, and, and, and these are the, are the paradigm cases, and it's, and it's only in the paradigm cases where necessary and sufficient conditions have to be provided for conceptual analysis. Yeah. And here we're wanting to remind Plantinga that scientists on Alpha Centauri are not paradigm cases. Well, it, it seems to me that they're not. And in fact, I think you can, you can take the spirit of this paradigm cases approach and, 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 and take it even, even further 
and say, well, look, there's not just paradigm cases of, of things which say you know, maybe are knowledge. You could say in the same spirit that there are paradigm cases of things which are not knowledge. If you're evaluating, for example, theories of justification and you're doing this conceptual analysis that Plantinga does, then I think you should examine paradigm cases of justification and not sort of deviant, bizarre cases of justification. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's some... some uh, you know, justice in asking for the paradigm case spirit to be applied liberally and uh, and generously. But anyway, these are the it's sort of this this alleged zone of clarity which we should really try be trying to come up uh, uh, with analyses for counterexamples which are of of cases that that fall outside of the paradigms are apparently not relevant to criticizing a concept on the basis of, you know, not, not providing necessary or sufficient conditions. So in, in any event, the theory that he, he does defend, and which I and others have called uh, proper functionalism, essentially says that, that warrant is uh, some sort of quantity that's a, that's, a, that's a function of four different criteria being met. Mm-hmm. First of all, if your belief is to be warranted, then it has to be the product of cognitive faculties, which are, not surprisingly given the name of the theory, functioning properly. There has to be no cognitive or mental malfunction in those processes or faculties which are responsible for the belief in question. So your belief, if it is to be warranted, has to satisfy that criterion. The second criterion, these faculties also have to be operating in what might be called a friendly epistemological environment. If you want to presuppose some things that Plantinga seems to want to presuppose about proper function, namely that it requires intelligent design, then I suppose you could construe this this second criterion of proper functionalism as, as saying that, that, that the faculties have to be operating in an environment similar to the one for which they were designed by right. their designer. But if you don't want to put it in that way, then I suppose you'd have to come up with some different way of understanding this environmental constraint. A third constraint is reliability. These these faculties have to be functioning in a, in a way that's statistically reliable. They have to, at least more often than not, produce true beliefs. And furthermore, it has to be that they are somehow aimed or oriented toward producing true beliefs. It cannot be that the faculty producing the belief whose warrant is in question, it cannot be that that faculty is, say, designed to produce beliefs which comfort us uh, and make us feel safe when we have things to fear or something of that sort. So there are these four different requirements. And if, if, if a belief is produced by faculties which fulfill these four requirements, then it gets to be warranted. And warrant is apparently something which comes in degrees, according to Plantinga. Mm-hmm. And if a belief is warranted, then the degree to which it is warranted, you can, you can use the confidence to gauge the degree of warrant in the event that the belief is warranted. Okay. He wouldn't be saying that mere confidence makes a belief warranted. Why does Plantinga think that this is a better theory of warrant than other possibilities? Well, I can start off with a prior issue, and that is that is why he thinks it's better to look at warrant in religious epistemology rather than, say, other epistemic concepts. And I think I've already already alluded to the answer to this, 
earlier, and that is that he, he thinks that warrant is somehow more restrictive, that it's not so easy to earn on the behalf of just about anything. Mm-hmm. Unlike, say, uh, justification and rationality, warrant is the gateway to knowledge so to speak, in that it is by definition, not Plantinga's analysis of it, because that's certainly not by definition true. The analysis of warrant is that which converts merely true belief into knowledge, you know, makes it part of the route to knowledge, which has to be true. So I think Plantinga sees warrant as the, as the, the preeminent epistemic concept of interest as far as religious epistemology goes. He thinks that, that the other sorts of internalist concepts are just too easily satisfied. So warrant is to be preferred over epistemic alternatives. And as far as his particular theory of warrant, well, I've already mentioned how in uh, in warrant the current debate, he considers a number of alternatives and he criticizes them using this strict model. And I've already talked about the you know the double standard there. So I suppose you could say that I'm not terribly convinced on the basis of what he's done that the proper functionalist theory of warrant is, in fact, superior to its alternatives. I mean, the whole point of warrant, the current debate, was to kind of clear the field, to make a negative case for proper functionalism. I think just about all of the theories in warrant, the current debate, when he does mount these counterexamples against them, they frequently center around cognitive malfunction. That is, they, they frequently focus on the very thing that his own theory of, of warrant is tailor-made to satisfy. So he, he goes through all of these alternatives and shows that they all fall afoul of cognitive malfunction. And so, accordingly, the solution must be something which takes into account cognitive malfunction and rules it out. And so yeah. we, get, we get proper functionalism. So I think yeah. that's supposed to be a large part of what supports his theory. And as I've said, I think it's questionable how well it's been supported, given that it's pretty clear that Plantinga's own analysis of warrant could not survive the strict model of what it is that, that, that a successful uh, analysis has to do, namely account for all logically possible uh, counterexamples. I, I, mm-hmm. I'm very confident that neither his nor really any non-trivial theory of warrant could carry off that Herculean task. And so I think it's relevant to support that theory. If if the negative case in its favor is to be restored, then some second look has to be taken with the paradigm case model seriously uh, in mind before just confidently declaring that, well, you know, because all these cases couldn't manage to deal with cognitive malfunction, therefore this theory, which is tailor-made to deal with cognitive malfunction, is, is, is somehow superior. Now, I think another reason that Plantinga might prefer the theory that he's come up with as, as opposed to uh, any others is because he thinks that proper function as a concept is something which cannot be accommodated in the naturalistic worldview. That proper function only really makes coherent literal sense against the background of a supernaturalistic worldview that involves a designer of the cognitive faculties which are you know allegedly functioning properly yeah and because they're functioning according to the intelligent design of that's right the, des- the design plan yeah early on in, in warrant and proper function when he's presenting his theory of warrant he tries to be 
ecumenical and tell his readers that, that his theory can be seen, you know, you can see the design requirement either literally or not literally. But by the end of the book, it, it's revealed that actually it turns out only really going to work within a, a theistic or designer yeah. worldview. So I think that's an additional reason for him to prefer, a, a possible motivation to prefer this theory. Yeah. Well, I could see how you could be ecumenical with a proper functionalist account. For example, naturalist scientists will talk about how our brains evolved in a particular environment on the African savanna, mm -hmm, uh, and mm -hmm. they evolved with intuitions and perceptions that work in that particular type of environment, and that that is why when we turn our brains to try to observe and comprehend and, in, and make inferences about, for example, phenomena in the quantum world, uh, our brains just break down and just don't... <laughs> don't respond to that very are, well. Aren't able to do very yeah, well with and that. So yeah. in those cases, our brains are kind of, in a way, functioning in an environment not conducive to their design, even though their design, according to the scientists, would be a evolutionary natural design rather than a... That's a very interesting suggestion. Although although Blantinga would, would, would say that uh, ultimately, that even their trying to think of things in these sorts of terms, ultimately for them, unless they presuppose that those things which are functioning, you know, properly in some context and not properly in another, that that distinction does not literally apply if those faculties were not ultimately the product of design. Something like a design argument that is sort of a byproduct of his, of his theory of warrant. Yeah, well, he argues elsewhere, of course, that naturalism can't account for brains that would uh, produce knowledge or that kind of thing for other reasons yes. but yeah. that's kind of getting a little off little off of our topic yeah 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 although ironically those uh, i think i know the arguments you're thinking of and they're both tied in with his dealings with the great pumpkin objection in the warrant phase and uh, i'd actually hope that i could avoid detailing these arguments just because they are so intricate mm -hmm. as well as uh, as rather elaborate and and ultimately they can be separated from the great pumpkin issue but they but they do come up in his stage three response to the great pumpkin objection oh that's that is to to, to get a, a little bit ahead of ourselves but in any event that is some of why i think he, he might prefer proper functionalism to its alternatives now when he applies this proper functionalist account of warrant to christian theology he gets Warranted Christian Belief, which is the title of his, you know, 2000 book. So what does that look like then? Maybe we should start with explaining the centerpiece of uh, that book, which is which is something Plantinga calls the uh, extended mm -hmm. AC model. And I should say something about the name. It's the A slash C model because of uh, what Plantinga sees as the agreement between uh, Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin on there being some inborn human sense of the divine. And the model is extended because it is a model not just of how belief in God can be warranted, but how full-blooded Christian beliefs can be warranted, and specifically be warranted in the basic way. Sometimes I think it doesn't make that distinction when he's writing in, in warranted Christian belief, but I think it, it, it should be taken as assumed, even when it's not there, that he's, he's defending the possibility of basic warranted belief. That is, belief which is not supported on the basis of arguments or evidence, yet mm -hmm. is nevertheless such that if 
the belief were true, it would qualify as knowledge. And we know that Plantinga thinks that is because it will satisfy the proper functionalist theory. So mm-hmm. anyway, he has this you know, ex- extended AC model, which is basically a picture of how it is that humanity can can have these beliefs. And a major part of, of that picture is this sense of the divine, which following Calvin, he calls the sensus divinitatis. And this is uh, allegedly some sort of inborn faculty that we all as human beings have. And of course, the immediate objection which springs to mind, at least to my mind, is, well, I mean, it makes sense to say I have a faculty or faculties of perception. I have, mm-hmm. at the very least, abilities of memory. I can do math and, and uh, you know, and everyone else can do this too. And we all seem to share certain common abilities you know, by and large. But the suggestion that there's somehow a, a faculty of deity detection, the question arises as to, well, then why does it not work in so many people? Why is Christian belief not more widespread? Or at least, why is not uh, theistic belief more widespread? Why is it that uh, in order to cause these beliefs to thrive, you have to educate people, have to indoctrinate people, you have to raise them and teach them to hold these beliefs? Why is the sensus divinitatis especially defective among scientists and philosophers? Yeah, why do you find these correlations between belief and certain populations. Yeah, absolutely. It seems somewhat mystifying. And Plantinga's answer, well, I don't think he addresses anything as specific as that question you've just raised, but with regard to why it's not more universal or why why belief in God is not on a par with these other sorts of beliefs, that it doesn't really seem you need the same sort of education. I, I, I have memories, and you may have to teach me things to get me to remember certain things, fine, that's, that's fair enough. But in general, I can form memories without being taught how to do so. I can form perceptual mm-hmm. beliefs. You know, you have to teach me what the word is. This is a tree. These are what trees are. There's a certain amount of education, but the bare seeing of the tree, it doesn't seem to be nearly as uh, loaded as belief in God, and particularly uh, belief in the Christian God uh, seems to be very heavily reliant upon a certain amount of teaching and not just sort of raw experience. So the explanation for why this census divinitatis does not work more universally is sin, original sin. Scientists and philosophers are particularly sinful then. I suppose that you could conclude that, although uh, he would certainly not want to say that this sin is in any way, you know, a personal or intentional failing, although I, it can be, but I think it can also be seen as more of a disease where the uh, sinner in question deserves more pity than, uh, than mm-hmm. censure. Yeah. Although you still have to ask why is it, assuming that rates of unbelief are higher in scientists and philosophers, why is that so? I suppose you could come up with some sort of ad hoc explanation, but it would, that's, the problem that it would that it would be ad hoc. Well, and also it it would seem like planning would have to say that there's a particular degree of this type of sinfulness in Sweden and Laos in the late 20th century, but people in Nigeria and the southern United States are particularly lacking this type of sin. It seems very implausible. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm inclined to agree that the uh, the geographical distribution 
of this essentially damage to a cognitive faculty. Yeah. And the fact that its outputs are uh, largely determinable by, by sociological factors mm-hmm. seems strange. But in any event, he thinks, okay, so the sin solves the problem of why this belief is not more universal, but of course we don't want the sin to be too effective, otherwise then you have the problem of explaining well, why, why anyone believes these things. So it is the uh, something called, the founding plan thinker calls the internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Holy Spirit, and this is part of the extended AC model story of how it is that Christian beliefs can have warrant, that when, uh, for example, if you are sitting and reading some scripture and uh, you are fortunate, because obviously some people sit and read scripture and don't have this experience, but According to Plantinga's model, some people do, where when they are reading scripture, uh, the, the Holy Spirit will come into them and heal the damage to their senses divinitatis to some extent, allowing to some extent warranted beliefs about these matters to emerge. That's his basic story about how, how it is that warranted Christian beliefs can be produced, because presumably this process is somewhat akin to a cognitive faculty which functions properly in the environment for which it's designed in a reliable fashion and is aimed towards producing true beliefs rather than untrue beliefs. Does he think that it's also this same faculty that gives believers more specific theological knowledge? Because then he would have a problem that this faculty is actually not very statistically reliable because whatever Plantinga believes about God... There's a mm-hmm. very small number of Christians who believe all of that about God, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, because there's so, mm-hmm. such a great variety of theological positions. I do agree. I'm not exactly sure what he would say to that. I suppose one thing that could be done would be to make the outputs of the census divinitatis quite minimal. The more minimal you make them, the more plausible it is that people share some sort of similar output. But yeah, the more specific you make it, the less it looks like everyone's having the same sort of experience. I guess he can always just say it's sin. It's always available to to say, well, this person just hasn't been, they haven't had the sin eradicated sufficiently. Perhaps they've had it eradicated to the point where, you know, it, it produces merely warranted belief in God, but they've, you know, they're Jewish, and so they haven't quite got the right, uh, you know, the faculty isn't quite working properly in them sufficiently enough to give them warranted basic belief in God, but maybe maybe not sufficiently enough to, uh, you know, to give them warranted uh, belief that uh, Christ is not risen, for example. Those Jews are so close. <laughs> yes, yes. Just missed it. But so far, maybe next time. Oh. Now, the thing about this model, and Planting is very explicit here, he is not in any way arguing that this is true, although he thinks that either this or something like this is true, but he is not arguing that it's true. All that he is arguing is he makes basically three main claims on behalf of this model. One, he claims that it provides a coherent story of how presumably basic Christian belief can have warrant, that if Christianity is true, then there are no cogent complaints against this model. And his third claim, and perhaps the most interesting claim, that if Christianity is true, then very likely uh, Christian beliefs have warrant, either in the way described by this model of Plantinga's or in some 
other similar way. Ultimately, Plantinga sees the truth of what the Christians believe and the warrant of their beliefs as being very closely linked. Essentially, that if they are true, then they will be warranted. And, and if you think about this, it, it, it makes a certain am- amount of sense. All right, Christianity is true, so there is a creator God who did design us, and he did design our faculties, and He, if he gave us this census divinitatis, well, okay, then that will be true. And actually, this is, this is a, bit, a bit sketchy, because to say that if Christianity is true, then you know, likely it has warrant in, in some way, like the extended AC model, well, what about versions of Christianity which adhere to more evidentialist thinking that don't yeah. subscribe to the presence of a census divinitatis or anything like that? I mean, it seems to be smuggling that portion of the extended model into the definition of Christianity by saying, if Christianity is true, then very likely it has warrant in some way akin to that described by the, the extended AC model. But Anyway, because he sees this connection between them, he takes from this a certain apologetic strategy and says, okay, look, there are two main kinds of objections against Christian belief. There are what he calls de facto objections, and a de facto objection is an objection that the the thing being objected against is false or unlikely. It's an objection against the fact of the matter. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you know, for example, a de facto objection against belief in God might be uh, the the argument from evil. So long as it's concluding, you know, either, you know, that that God doesn't exist or that God probably does not exist, it qualifies as a de facto objection. Now, the other kind of objection, and one that Plantinga curiously says is the more prevalent of the two, is what he calls the de jure objection. And the de jure objection against something, although in this case we're specifically talking about Christianity, is an objection which is supposed to follow even on the assumption that that which is being objected against is true. So it's a bit convoluted to get you, to get your head around. It's on the one hand, yes, a de jure objection is an epistemic objection. Is it, it is an objection that there's something epistemologically lacking in the belief in question that it's uh, unjustified or irrational or foolish or naive or not intellectually up to snuff. But a specific part of this de jure objection is that whatever it is that, that it's complaining about, that it's saying that this is the case even if that which is being objected against is true. So, for example, if I were to raise a generic sort of de jure objection against Christian belief, I might say, look, I don't know if that stuff's true. How could anybody possibly know anything like that? But I can tell you this, that even if it is true, there's something wrong with believing that it's true. That's the basic generic structure of a de jure objection. Well, and I think I can give another example. On my website, I will often give de jure objections against atheists about their atheism, and I'll say, look, I agree that God does not exist, uh, so I'm not making a de facto objection against what they've said, but I say something like, the arguments that you just gave on behalf of atheism don't work, and so I don't think 
you're using the right epistemological processes and you should really examine the processes that you're using to form your beliefs because mm -hmm. they're faulty processes and they're going to lead to lots of false beliefs, even though in this case you happen to be correct that God does not exist. Right. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an objection that, that essentially says, truth aside, there's something wrong with what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And so Plantinga takes that distinction, and, and because he argues that the bulk of the complaints with Christian belief have been of the de jure variety, I'm not myself quite convinced that this is so. No. It might very well be that the bulk of objections against Christianity have been, have been phrased in, in epistemic terms, as in like, this is irrational, this is foolish, this is, this is et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. But I don't know if those objections will have then gone on and stipulated, oh yeah, and that's even if these things are true. <laughs> I don't know how many people have tacked that on at the end of their epistemic complaints against Christian belief. And if you were to go back and ask them, I'm not sure that they would necessarily concede that that's what they what they had intended. But anyway, uh -huh. this is this is what Plantinga says is the most prevalent objection against Christian belief. And then he to respond to it, he says, well, but you know, look at what I've I've just shown with my extended AC model. I've got this story of how these beliefs can can be basic and have warrant, and that that will follow from the truth of those beliefs. So for you to object that whether or not these things are true, there's something wrong with them. Well, that's incoherent because it, it's the only epistemic concept of, of interest is warrant. And whether or not these beliefs will be warranted is pretty much precisely when they're true. So by Plantinga's analysis, there is no coherent de jure objection because by conceding the very matter that, that, that these beliefs might be true, you given the link between their truth and their warrant, you can't go on and then say, but they're not warranted, because it would be when they were true that they were warranted. Yeah. And here, you know, I think a lot of people are going to respond, well, but isn't the whole point that we're trying to figure out whether or not Christianity is true? And so if Planaga has to say, well, if Christianity is true, then it's probably warranted, that's just not answering what we want to know. But then Planning is going to say, well, that's not my project. Yes, that is essentially what he does. You know, he acknowledges that he's, he's not arguing that these things are true, that he thinks they're true, that he thinks they're among some of the most important truths there are, but that it's just not possible to argue for them effectively, but that that should not be held against them because it's true of all sorts of other things that we believe, but yet which are not objectionable. And so, therefore, it's, a, according to Plantinga, it's a double standard to say that Christian belief has to be defended in this way, if not everything else has to be offended in this way as well. Mm -hmm. He's very convinced that there are no successful de, de facto objections against Christian belief. And so because there are no successful de facto objections, that even though his defense of the epistemological status of Christian belief is only kind of conditional, you know, if these things are true, then they're warranted. Well, as far as he's concerned, n nobody can possibly show that these things are not true. And so there is nothing wrong with believing that they are. Well, uh, Tyler, we've already raised a number of objections to Planaga's Warranted Christian Belief Project. Are there some other significant objections that you raise in your dissertation? 
Well, there's a, one thing that I, that I harp on about quite a bit is something called universal sanction. And it's, uh, I have to give credit to James Sennett. He came up with this. And what it is, is it is a criterion of proper basicality, which attempts to meet the burden of proof, which back when Plantinga was a Methodist had issued against the uh, evidentialist. The nice things about uh, the universal sanction criterion of proper basicality is that it covers the usual sorts of counterexamples that, that Plantinga raised against classical foundationalism. It seems to rule out uh, theism, and to uh, my eye, it looks like a very promising criterion, at least for people who are looking for such things. And basically, the gist of universal sanction, well, to start off, I have to stipulate that beliefs can be somewhat meaningfully divided up into categories or kinds. And in the context of the present discussion, this is not a terribly controversial assumption. We've already been talking about uh, self-evident beliefs versus incorrigible beliefs versus perceptual and, and other minds and memory, uh, memory beliefs, so and theistic beliefs. So this is, this is not, a, not a controversial assumption, but universal sanction works with this idea of kinds of beliefs. And according to this criterion, a belief kind is universally sanctioned if a thoroughgoing, sincere skepticism towards those kinds of beliefs as an entirety is pragmatically inconceivable. To give you an example, consider memorial beliefs. I've got a number of memories of various things. I'm constantly consulting my memory to tell me uh, where this is, where that is, presumably uh, even a little bit of what I should say next because I have to keep in, 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 in mind things that I've already said and just been saying. And I take these sorts of beliefs for granted that memory beliefs are, are each and every single one of them guaranteed to be true or uh -huh. that they're, they're believed in a dogmatic sort of way. I question individual memory beliefs all the time, both those of others and those of myself. This is something we all do. But what we don't do, at least if we want to engage in a normal, sane human life, is doubt, seriously doubt, all of our memories sort of in toto all at once. To do so would completely undermine a, a normal human life, is the way that is the way that Senate puts it. Yeah. And so memory beliefs are universally sanctioned. Other minds beliefs, uh, self-evident beliefs, incorrigible beliefs, perceptual beliefs, all of these seem to pass the universal sanction criterion quite well. Theistic belief, on the other hand, does not. Theistic belief is not universally sanctioned. And so how is this relevant to planning as warrant phase then? Well, you, because you can, you could then ask yourself, well, what is, uh, what is an effective criterion of those things which get to be properly basic? I mean, in the warrant mm -hmm. phase, this is a question which kind of fades into the background. I suppose you could take planting his theory of warrant and say, well, this is a theory of what could be properly basic, but, but he doesn't tend to cast it that way. So universal sanctions could, I think, certainly be offered up as a competing criterion if, if necessary for that which can be properly basic. Mm -hmm. And ironically, in the Warrant and Proper Function, which is the second book of the Warrant Trilogy, when Plantinga is trying to make a case for his theory by choosing non 
controversial examples that that a wide readership, not just a, a theistic readership, but his, his secular readership, will uh, tend to find plausible. All of the sorts of beliefs that he lists as being the sort of thing that can be properly basic, all of these things qualify as universally sanctioned. All of them are the sorts of things that it seems at least plausible that a sincere, sincere skepticism towards, say, uh, all beliefs about yourself or uh, the external world or induction, if you were just to simply not trust any inductive inferences on principle, life would be hard, to put it mildly, perhaps unlivable. So all of these things, which, which Plantinga is, is trying to point to as supporting his theory, are things which seem to qualify as uh, universally sanctioned. And yet, belief in God does not seem to be universally sanctioned. So hmm. here we have, uh, you know, even despite the shift away from justification and rationality toward warrant, I still think that universal sanction can be taken as a promising criterion of that which can be basically warranted and uh, and and that which cannot. The other objection that advanced quite a bit, and it's one that I'm actually I'm turning the, that material from the dissertation into uh, into a book, which is close to being finished, is the Great Pumpkin objection is still applicable to this this warrant phase. Hmm. If you remember, the basic gist of the Great Pumpkin objection is well, you know, why can't anyone do this? In the second stage of Plantinga's religious epistemology, the this in question was the inductive method. But but now the inductive method is gone. So the apologetic method of the warrant phase is now this connection between the truth of Christian belief or the warrant of those beliefs and the ability of the extended AC model to uh, rebuff the so-called de jure objections against Christian belief. Mm-hmm. Following James Sennett, I've called this the retreat to metaphysics. As, as a name for this sort of general maneuver, which uh, is basically to say, you can't criticize my beliefs on purely epistemic grounds. You have to challenge their metaphysical status. You have to, you know, you have to argue for their falsehood, mm-hmm. not just for their their epistemological failings. And so, Senate's name, which I think is fairly apt, is is uh, the retreat to metaphysics. So, the most plausible construal of of this rhetorical question, great pumpkin objection, why can't anyone do this, uh, applied to the warrant phase, is why can't anybody or just about anybody come up with their own model of warranted belief in X, which is such that if it's true, then the beliefs that X models will be warranted, thereby undermining de jure objections against X. I mean, why why can't all sorts of, of undesirable epistemological bedfellows hop in with Plantinga and basically mm-hmm. hold more or less the same maneuver. Yeah, why can't the Muslim just say, well, I think that I have a, you know, a sense of Allah that God put in me, and so you can't just say my belief in Allah is irrational. You have to first show that all this stuff about Allah implanting in me a sense of himself is false, you know? Yes, yeah, exactly. And actually, Plantinga bites the bullet on that. Maybe first I'll just start out with how he initially proceeds against this objection is to consider that there is at least one set of beliefs that cannot conduct this retreat to metaphysics, and that is the belief that there are no warranted beliefs. If you're considering whether no warranted beliefs or no beliefs have warrant can adopt the retreat to metaphysics, well, clearly it can't, because if no beliefs have warrant is true, then it will obviously not be a warranted belief. So there is at least one 
counterexample to the, if you want to construe the Great Pumpkin Objection as why can't anybody do this, there is at least one counterexample one person can't, or at least one belief system can't <laughs> adopt this strategy. Okay. Now, that's obviously pretty thin produce, and, and Plantinga recognizes that, and, he, and, he, and he, he admits, well, maybe that looks a little bit like a case of logical ledger domain or, or logical sleight of hand. So he then asks a, a little bit more of a serious question, not just, you know, can anybody do this, which can be rebuffed by a single counterexample, but is there any belief systems that are sort of similar to Christian belief? but are such that they can come up with a model of their warranted basic beliefs such that, you know, if, if their beliefs are true, then, the, then they'll, they'll be warranted. And the answer is, yes, there are. There are similar belief systems to Christianity, uh, and uh, specifically he lists the other major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam. He also refers to perhaps some forms of Buddhism, some forms of Hinduism, some forms of Native American uh, religion. The clear implication seems to be that theistic belief systems, belief systems which involve reference to a designer who can make our cognitive faculties such that you know certain religious beliefs are warranted. If a belief system can do that, then it can adopt the retreat to metaphysics. In answer to your, your prior question of, of, of what stops the Muslim, I think the answer might be nothing, that the Muslim can probably do the same thing and, and say, well, you know, you, you, you really need to tackle uh, whether or not the things I believe are true, because according to this model of Islamic belief, or uh, presumably you would come up with, you know, different models for different sects, because not all of the, the various sects are going to want to have the same model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right away, this, this suggests that there might be a serious kind of pluralistic proliferation of viable models. I mean, uh, you know, Christianity is not a, mo- a monolith. The Judaism is not a monolith. Mm-hmm. None of these religions are monolithic. They all have, have numerous splinters. So the suggestion that theistic belief systems can adopt this retreat to metaphysics has some pretty far-reaching implications for what can pull this same maneuver. But Plantinga doesn't seem to be bothered by this relativism, because it seems that he's satisfied that if it's just his theistic brethren which get to use this method of defense, then that's okay, because at least it advances the situation beyond stage two and its reference to the inductive method. Remember, ultimately, Plantinga had to more or less concede that pretty much anybody could use the inductive method without too much restriction. But with the extended AC model and its attendant retreat to metaphysics, he's biting the bullet that, yes, there's a certain amount of relativism in who can use it, but that the relativism is not so widespread as to include everybody. And as, as his examples of people who can't use the retreat to metaphysics, and presumably as examples which are supposed to be more interesting than the, uh, the logical ledger domain example of no beliefs have warrant, he raises voodoo and flat earthism and uh, Humean skepticism and philosophical naturalism. And he uses these sort of four examples as belief systems which he says cannot adopt the retreat to metaphysics as evidence that it's it's not the sort of thing that just anybody and their brother can use, and so that therefore it is it is presumably somewhat apologetically 
significant. I don't think only theists can use this kind of retreat to metaphysics, though. I mean, I could say I believe that we live in a simulated universe that was programmed by a math student in a higher dimension, and this math student in a higher dimension programmed in so that we would evolve a faculty that would reliably aim towards a belief set of his existence, and yet there are lots of different ways that this faculty can work poorly, uh, and I'm just the only one who, or one of the few who has been able to overcome these uh, faults of the of the mechanism, you know, kind of like overcoming sin at the internal instigation of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And then, you know, somebody could reply, that's insane, that's incredibly irrational, yes. and I could say, well, hold on there, no, it's not. You, if, if my belief if, is if true... If what I say is true, then yeah. these beliefs have warrant. Yes. Yeah. I think you've definitely seen through the game, and, and this uh, kind of ties in with uh, a criticism that I, that I raised in my dissertation, was that the dismissal of voodoo and the flat earthists' ability to adopt this retreat to metaphysics is far too quick. In fact, Plantinga doesn't offer any arguments at all. He just simply states it as if it is obvious that, well, of course the voodooists can't adopt the retreat to metaphysics, and of, of, of course the, 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 the flat earthers can't do this. But when you actually sit down and think about it, and, and ask yourself, okay, well, what what do voodooists believe, and what's what is part of their their belief system? And it turns out that it takes very little research to find out that voodooism, as a belief system, refers to powerful supernatural agents, and even as part of their mythology, either does or can have, you know, a creator god. With these resources in place. It seems to me that there's no reason to think that a diligent voodooist who has uh, read his Plantinga couldn't sit down and come up with a uh, parallel model to the extended AC model, which, mm-hmm. using elements of voodoo, the- I hesitate to call it theology, but voodooology, comes up with a just-so story of how it is that if these beliefs are true, then they will satisfy you know whatever account of warrant they think is the best one. So... Contrary to Plantinga's decree, I don't think it's at all obvious that voodooists can't adopt the retreat to metaphysics. Mm-hmm. And with regard to flat earthers, um, if you just take in isolation, the earth is flat, mm-hmm. and that's all you consider. Well, okay, fine, sure, just because I believe the earth is flat and it's true, it doesn't follow from that 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 belief will therefore be warranted. Fair enough. I mean, in the same way, if voodooism, if the only thing that you, you, you describe voodooism as is there are zombies and, and chicken sacrifices, well, that, the truth of that doesn't imply that belief in those things are warranted either. But when you actually look at the fuller belief system that's behind it, and for example, with the flat earthers, if you ask yourself, well, who is it that believes that the earth is flat, or who is it that has believed that the earth is flat, it turns out that belief in a flat earth is very often, although not always, but very often combined with fundamentalist Christianity. Yeah, or Islam. I actually saw a Muslim official debating on like Saudi Arabian television or something like that with a Muslim scientist, and the Muslim official was trying, was giving all these arguments, a long list of arguments as to why really? the earth was flat. Oh, yeah. Wow. Like three years ago. 
You can. Uh, it's on YouTube. I'll link to it. In oh the show notes. well, I'll have to. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll have to catch up. <laughs> Goodness, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. I had assumed that there were contemporary flat earthers, but just that they were difficult to find. There's actually a, a, a wonderful book came out a little while ago. I believe the author's name was Christine Garwood. I would have to double check that, but it's called Flat Earthism or Flat Earth or a Flat Earth or something uh-huh. like that. And uh, it's about the history of the idea that the Earth is flat. There's some hilarious stuff about the co-discoverer of evolution, uh, Wallace, uh, because he was hard up and needed the money, entered into uh, these public debates with this very prominent flat earth advocate by the, who had the, the pseudonym of, uh, of Parallax and how these debates, well, they didn't go as, as Wallace planned, let's put it that way. And I don't know if he ever actually managed to collect his money uh, from this Parallax fellow. And it, it, it seemed overall like a bad idea to, to debate one of these people on, on the flatness of the earth. But in any event, you can see how, okay, well, can belief in a flat earth adopt the retreat to metaphysics? Well, what happens if we just graft and the earth is flat onto the extended AC model? You know, if we, if we incorporate the entire model as it is, because certainly I, I'm, I'm sure fundamentalist Christians would find the model uh, congenial in, in, in many ways, perhaps lacking in others, but, but certainly not something that would be uh, entirely odious to them. And, uh, and just add a few details like that, uh, the, well, one, that the clear and obvious interpretation of the Bible is that the earth is flat, that the Bible is to be trusted in all things. Yeah, yeah. And so if, you know, devilish scientists with their satanic pictures from space try to convince you that the earth is a globe, uh, these things are just wrong. You can use sin to account for why it is that everyone else is, is or mostly everyone else is, is, uh-huh. is mistaken because they're not part of the elect. And so, like in the case of voodoo, I don't think that one can just say baldly and belief in a flat earth cannot adopt the retreat to metaphysics. Plantinga didn't choose these examples arbitrarily. He chose these things because these are the sorts of things that, that you, can, you can get away in our society with pretty much dismissing out of hand as being kooky and nutty and not mm-hmm. really too many people are going to stand up and defend them. So the idea that one of these or both of these, voodooism and flat earthism, can plausibly adopt the retreat to metaphysics seems to me to cast serious doubt on the apologetic merits of that maneuver. So what? Why should I care about that? I mean, what reason do I have to think this is true? What actual reasons can you provide to support this? If you think that, uh, you know, it's impressive that you can say, well, if it's true, then it's warranted. Well, it's not impressive because the voodooist and the flat earther and the uh, math student simulated universe person can yes. say exactly the same thing. And so I suppose you could, you could even use that to say, you know, so even if, let's say for the sake of argument that the naturalist can't adopt the retreat to metaphysics, as Plantinga argues, I don't know that it really much matters because of the fact that denizens of the, the epistemic dustbin can pull that maneuver yeah. really does, to me, kind of suggest that there's not really too much merit to being able to adopt the retreat to metaphysics. The arguments that Plantinga uses, the naturalist's ability to adopt the retreat to metaphysics, are actually very aggressive arguments, which are designed to show not simply that the naturalist cannot adopt the retreat to metaphysics, but that there is something seriously wrong with naturalistic beliefs. Uh, in, in short, that if naturalism is true, then there can be no knowledge. And if naturalism is true, 
than a fully informed, rational naturalist will discover if he follows a certain line of thinking that Plantinga presents, that his naturalistic beliefs are actually self-undermining. And there's that theme mm-hmm. again of, of, of yeah. how the, the positions that Plantinga takes issue with tend to be self-undermining. I guess the, uh, what was it, classical foundationalism in stage two, back in stage one, God and other minds, the, the candidate for self-undermining that, that pops into my mind is uh, verificationism. That was self-undermining. Now in the warrant phase, it's naturalism that is self-undermining. I would hazard to wager that if there is a fourth stage to Plantinga's religious epistemology, whoever plays the role of the villain will be self-undermining. <laughs> well, well, we'll wait and see. Uh, that that's an inductive inference that I make <laughs> on the grounds that such inferences can be properly basic via the universal sanction criterion of proper basicality. Wow. Well, there you go. You've wrapped it up. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, well, you've raised a lot of objections against Plantinga's epistemology. The last two that you raised, kind of the the resurrection of the Great Pumpkin objection, and universal uh, sanction. Yeah, universal sanction. Do you have any ideas about how Plantinga might respond to those arguments? The universal sanction. It's curious. He is surely familiar with it because the book in which it is presented, he writes a very glowing endorsement, uh, that is Plantinga, writes a very glowing endorsement on the back of Senate's book, which features the universal sanction criterion of proper basicality. Now, I'm not saying that that logically entails that Plantinga read the book or read it it scrupulously, but I mean, from what Senate says, it seems that Plantinga was pretty heavily involved Mm -hmm. in, in guiding Senate and providing advice and feedback on drafts and such. So, I think it's a very rational belief for me to hold that he is at least aware of the criterion, but he has unfortunately never actually explicitly addressed it in print. So I can only speculate how he might respond to it. And there's a, there's a, there's a couple of different ways. One, he could, I suppose, just raise a straightforward counterexample, which is the method that he seems to generally prefer against such things. That is, come up with a, a case of warrant or properly basic warrant that was not universally sanctioned, and then that would show that universal sanction was unnecessary. Or if you come up with a case of basic belief that is universally sanctioned, which which is not properly basic, well, then that would show that the criterion was insufficient. And I suppose he could try that that sort of strategy, although I think he would have to remember to keep in mind the paradigm case model and not just resort uh, to uh, you know any old bizarre uh, counterexample that, that that might do the job. Actually, using the standard which he advocates for defending his own theory would make things a little bit more difficult, but probably more fruitful as well. So that would be that would be one way to to deal with it. Another way to respond to universal sanction might be to oppress the problem of self-referential coherence. This is the demand that in order for universal sanction to be a plausible criterion of proper basicality that we should listen to and reject theistic, basic theistic beliefs on the basis of, that we need to see that universal sanction can sanction itself as a rational belief. That is, either the belief universal sanction is the best criterion of proper basicality, either that belief will have to itself be properly basic by the standards of universal sanction, or it's going to have to be derivable from an argument that has premises which are made up at 
the bottom of, of just those things which universal sanctions sanction. This sounds like very much a planting an objection. I think it's a plausible sort of thing that he might say. Now, he was able to use this kind of point against classical foundationalism fairly effectively. He, 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 was, he was able to persuade some people who weren't initially persuaded, uh, such as Philip Quinn, for example. He was uh, initially, Quinn, I think, was a bit, bit suspicious the Plantinga had moved uh, a little too quickly against classical foundationalism, but ultimately uh, Plantinga convinced him that uh, that although the case against classical foundationalism, although it wasn't anything like a proof, uh, Quinn did eventually end up conceding that things did look pretty challenging. And I think part of why he was fairly successful at convincing people that classical foundationalism was a dud, things looked a little dire. When the only resources you have at your disposal are those things which are self-evident, incorrigible, and evident to the senses. I think many agreed with Plantinga's intuition that that is a, a kind of a meager base from which to work, whereas universal sanction allows you know, beliefs about uh, other people's mental states, testimonial beliefs, of course, all the things condoned by classical foundationalism, but a whole wealth of other additional things not sanctioned by classical foundationalism. And so, although I don't know that anyone has come up with, uh, you know, the sort of proof that presumably Plantinga would insist upon supporting classical foundationalism on its own foundations, I don't think the reason for extreme pessimism that it cannot be done is there in the case of universal sanction as it was in the case of classical foundationalism. But there's some more reason to be optimistic that a good case could be made for this criterion of proper basicality on the basis of the wealth of things that it does endorse. And then how do you think he might respond to the latest uh, iteration of the Great Pumpkin objection? Well, with regard to voodoo, I mean, when I said it takes a very little research to show that voodooism involves reference to supernatural agents, well, I literally meant very little research because I did very little research on voodoo. I suppose Plantinga could do more research and find out that uh, it turns out that the dominant mythologies involved in voodoo are such that you could not, in fact, satisfy the proper functionalist account of what I mean, it, it, it could be done. It's an open question. It's an empirical question whether or not it could be done. I'm suspicious that it can be done, but I haven't actually done the research myself. And so Plantinga could do it and, and show that I'm, I'm actually you know, being overly optimistic here. So that's one way, I suppose, you could respond to the, the voodoo point. With regard to uh, the, the, the flatness of the earth, given some of Plantinga's responses to other similar sorts of absurd objections, uh, there is some reason to think that he might respond by simply saying, well, yeah, but we all know the earth's not flat. So even if they can adopt the retreat to metaphysics, who cares? They're wrong. He takes this kind of response in regard to uh, the suggestion that uh, there is a God who has given us a uh, sense of detecting giant invisible rabbits that live in Cleveland or something like that. And he concedes at the end that, that yeah, if, those, you know, if, it, if the story about how God has given us those faculties is true, then the beliefs that those faculties produce you know, will be warranted. But, but he dismisses that as being irrelevant because the, there is no such faculty, there are no such rabbits, and the whole thing's not true. Well, but isn't that the whole point? Isn't the whole point that these exactly. are absurd false beliefs, and so that's yes. why this is not a good way to go at knowledge? Yes, because, I mean, if, if, if all you had to do 
to dismiss those things is to say, well, they're false. Well, then why doesn't the naturalist, upon hearing of your impressive ability to be able to adopt the retreat to metaphysics, just, you know, roll his eyes and say, yeah, but none of that stuff's true. Yeah. I mean, if, if he can't do that, then I don't understand why it is that Plantinga thinks that he can just dismiss these other uh, absurd things. Perhaps it's a reticence to understand that some people see the things that he believes as being sort of on par absurdity wise with, with these, you know, bizarre scenarios with uh, space aliens and faculties yeah. producing belief in invisible rabbits and things of that sort. Well, and when Planiga says we have a census divinitatis, I do just roll my eyes and say, yeah, but we don't. I mean, there's yeah. just no reason to think that we have a census divinitatis. It does seem a bit pressing to ask what reason do we have to think that there is such a thing that there is this inborn sense of god heaven heaven forbid it's not something we can detect empirically is it yeah well and and let alone the idea of a spaceless timeless non-physical transcendent being who thinks and has knowledge and makes decisions and has desires or pro attitudes but without a brain or a nervous system i mean just just goes on and on and on. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah many, 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 many difficulties with it. Although uh, the one thing is that it's got going in its favor is that it's very socially acceptable. Yeah, that's, the, that's the, about the, it. You know, the, the idea that there can be consciousness disembodied from a brain, it may be a difficult to belief to defend, but it is not an uncommon belief, which, of course, does not count in the belief's favor in any way. Just because yeah. it's common doesn't mean that it's prudent or wise or true. But it can perhaps help one feel that it, what one believes is supported. But maybe the best thing to do in the face of this, these problems with voodooism and flat earthism is to bite the bullet and say, okay, well, I'd already, I'd already conceded that other theists could adopt the retreat to metaphysics. Why don't I just bite the bullet and say, okay, you got me. Voodoo can do it too. Turns out I hadn't realized that they, you know, had supernatural quasi-theistic agents. Okay, fair enough. And, and yep, yep. All right. The flat earthers, because you've grafted it onto a theistic belief system, yes, they can do the same thing. But to then turn and say, but look, the whole reason why these guys can, can adopt this maneuver is precisely because of their reference to a supernatural agency. And so, again, it is the supernaturalists who can adopt the retreat to metaphysics, not the naturalists. And so, even if I have to admit that the Voodooist and the Flat Earther can, can adopt my apologetic strategy, Nevertheless, perhaps perhaps Plantinga would be satisfied if if only he could he could deny the same privilege of the naturalist, even if he had to bite the vo the bullet on 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 the the voodooist and the flat earther. Not a privilege I want, frankly. Uh... <laughs> I really don't need to pull the the retreat to metaphysics. Well, and that's, Thank you very that's much. The, the, the thing is, I don't really, uh, I couldn't bring myself in my dissertation, and, and it was getting quite long, so it was time to finish off anyway, but I couldn't bring myself to, to bother trying to come up with a model of naturalistic belief, basic or otherwise, such that if it was true, then it followed that these beliefs would satisfy the proper functionalist theory of warrant. I mean, at least in part, because I'm not convinced that the proper functionalist theory of warrant is necessarily the way to go in epistemology. So yeah. I, I speculated, I think probably accurately, that there won't be too many naturalists who will actually be terribly interested in coming up with their own uh, naturalistic model of 
of warranted naturalistic belief that can that can that can adopt the retreat to metaphysics. But the reasons that Plantinga raises against their ability to do it and and further for the sort of the incoherence of the naturalistic worldview, I just don't think they're very satisfying arguments. Well, Tyler, you've done a wonderful job of explaining why Plantinga's account of warranted Christian belief is very problematic. I wonder if we could back up just briefly and I'll ask you, do you think that there is a different way in which belief in the God of classical theism could be rational, a more promising route than the one that Plantinga has developed? Uh, well, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if I could say more promising. Uh, I have to say, I think the way it should be done is through the quality of the arguments on its behalf. And for myself, I find that, for example, the phenomenon of evil and the arguments based upon it are just much more plausible objections to the idea that the universe is run by an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-loving, eternal, etc., etc., creator than such phenomena as motion and change and even some of the, the more recently discovered. Uh, I don't find those things are as good uh, evidence of such a being as evil is evidence against such a being. Well, Tyler, it's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. In the next episode, I'll be interviewing atheist political candidate Wynne Legro. So stay tuned for more Conversations from the Pale Blue Dot. <laughs>